Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's teaching is Mark 7, 24 through 37. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left her daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can take a seat. Good morning. Good to be with you all. If you don't know me, my name is Sean. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, man, I'm excited to open God's word with you. We have been studying the book of Mark for nearly 20 weeks now. And we've made our way into uh, chapter 7. And uh, the whole time that we've been studying this, there are, there are moments that seem like, oh, this is really clear. We see what Jesus is doing. And there are other moments that just seem confusing. Confusing. We've seen some of that already. And so before we dive in and try to understand any, any of it, I'd love for us to just open our hearts to prayer and ask the Spirit of God to come and help us. So, Spirit of God, this is your very word to us, your people And as we open it up today, we open it up with humility, and we open it up asking for your help. And we say that we believe it, but we also ask you to help our unbelief and the places that are confusing. We ask that you'd open our eyes to see what it is that you're speaking, open our hearts to understand. And uh, we we open up your word today, and we say, God, if you don't come and speak, we're not going to understand any of this. So as we, as we open up the word, God, may, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We need your help. We invite you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, I don't know if you're paying attention to, uh, to this, but uh, things are changing in our city. Um, I, I saw a few days ago, Mayor David Holt made this announcement that some of the census data had come back from the 2020 census, 
And uh, what he announced was that Oklahoma City is now the number two, number 22 largest city in the United States by population. That's kind of a big deal. Number 22 now. Um, he said that uh, the, the uh, study showed that we're now larger than Milwaukee, Baltimore, Louisville, Memphis, Detroit, Las Vegas, Portland, Boston, and El Paso. Our city is changing. Our city is growing. And uh, I, I remember just a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with some friends. We were out in the city, and we met a guy and his wife, and we were just chatting with them. And uh, they said they, they had just moved here from Austin, Texas. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, certainly it's got to be a job or some kind of transfer that's brought you here. And uh, what, what is it that brought you from such a vibrant and thriving city like Austin, Texas, to come live in Oklahoma City? And he just said, man, honestly, uh, we didn't have anything tying us down there. And we heard that Oklahoma City was pretty cool. And so we moved from Austin. I was like, wow, I was not expecting that. But welcome. We're glad that you're here. So uh, people are moving here from all over the United States, and people are resettling their lives from all over the world to come live in our city, and for all of the weird and cool things that that probably means, a couple of things stick out to me uh, that, that I pay attention to. One, I think that it probably m means our food is going to start to taste more like heaven uh, because we're adding cuisine and we're adding chefs from every tribe, tongue, and nation that are coming to live here. That's pretty great. Thanks be to God. It's going to taste more like heaven in our restaurants. But the second thing that I notice and pay attention to is I think, I think we just need to be aware that means that our stories and our backgrounds are becoming more diverse. It's no longer just kids that grew up in the Bible Belt that are running around in these neighborhoods and living in these homes and, and working these jobs and going to these schools. It's people that are coming from all over the world that are making up our stories. And I say all that uh, because I want to propose to you that no matter what your background is, no matter how long you've lived in our city, no longer uh, uh, what it is that you grew up believing, what your experience of religion is, or how different it varies from that of your neighbor, I really believe that most, most of us actually have a shared experience of religion, and that is this. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know the scriptures to be true, or maybe you're kind of making up uh, your own path as you go along, um, all of us believe on some level that our right standing before God, at least on some level, depends a little bit on what we've done in the last maybe 24 to 48 hours. Like God is in heaven, the creator of the entire universe, and he says to us, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> this is the way that we walk around feeling. And I think we know on some level, like, that's really not true. That's really kind of crazy. But we also kind of believe that we're carrying around a balance sheet of the, the moral achievements versus our failures. And God is looking at this, and this somehow has something to do with our standing before God. And I think we know that we have something special in Jesus. We know that we have something that he's done for us at the cross. But if we're honest, what we're really working toward is the goodness of God mixed with our goodness. And if we have both those things, then we're really going to be set. The problem with this kind of thinking is the Bible. It is going to say to us again and again, I don't know what that kind of way of thinking is. I don't know what all of that moral achievement and you trying to earn your way back to God is, but it's certainly not Christianity. 
It's not the message of the gospel. It actually flies in the face of it. Christians and non-Christians alike, I think we find ourselves drifting into this pattern where we go, yeah, the good news of Jesus, we know all that, but also, I've got to hold it all together. And our scripture today is going to actually call us out of that drift, and it's going to remind us that true religion, true faith, is something very different. So we're going to go back through that text. We're going to go back through the story that Arden just read. And uh, I want us to quickly move through three movements in our time together. I want us to spend most of our time looking at this idea, the nature of true religion. We're going to look at the nature of what is true religion. And then briefly, the the next couple of, of movements that I want to work through, true religion meets us where we are, and true religion is coming with a vengeance. So let's, uh, let's start our time in Mark 7, and I want us to look at the nature of true religion. Read again with me verse 24 in chapter 7. This is our story. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Have you noticed for the last couple of chapters in our study together that there are these moments where Jesus is just trying to withdraw. He's just kind of trying to get away. He's trying to get some rest. Hey, ministry is really rewarding. And it's also really tiring. Um, There are times where it just feels like, man, we're just baptizing people. And uh, we're launching new community groups. And we're celebrating new life and and getting to visit, uh, you know, new babies in the hospital. Amazing. And then there are times like the last probably 10 days in our congregation where it just feels like one after the next, we're sitting with families, grieving with them, helping to plan funerals. We've done that four times in the last two weeks. Uh, Last Saturday, I found found myself in this room preaching the funeral of a 15-year-old boy who just died tragically and accidentally. And Sitting with that family, hey, the weight of that doesn't lift off quickly. And Jesus... He's, he's doing this like every single day. This is just normal for Jesus. He's drawing these big crowds in. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's doing all of this teaching, and he just gets tired. Jesus is fully human, and he's doing ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit, and sometimes you just need a nap. Sometimes you just need to like pull out your phone and flip up the Airbnb app and just go like, is there a place that I can go get away for a couple of days? But it just, it doesn't work. Every time he does this, someone sees him. Have you noticed? Someone hears that he's around and he's interrupted. And this time what he's done is he's, he's made a trip actually outside of the Jewish provinces where he's been working. And I think the hope here is that maybe he can go to a place where the crowds don't recognize him so much, but It doesn't work. Keep reading with me, verse 25. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So here's a woman. She sees him. She hears that he's in town. She tracks him down to the place where he's trying to get some rest, and she throws herself at the feet of Jesus, begging him to come and have mercy on her daughter who is oppressed by this demonic spirit. So we're told here, 
She's a Syrophoenician by birth, and that just means that she's not Jewish. And geographically, she would have lived kind of on the outskirts of these Jewish provinces that Jesus had been traveling in and out of. And uh, what this means is, I think what we take away from this is the message of Jesus is no longer just inside the house of Israel, but it's making its way to the outsider. It's making its way to the outsider, and that's going to become significant and just going to make things interesting here in a minute. But right here, I think we have to stop, and we just have to ask the question, why is Mark telling us this part of the story right here? Um, Why is it that he's telling us this in this place? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we studied the the death of John the Baptist, and it was kind of like totally out of left field? And the thing that we had to do to make sense of that passage is we had to look at what was before it, and we had to look at what's after it. And that's going to help us again today to find out why is is it that Mark is giving us this story. So last week, what we saw was that Jesus was confronting not Greeks, not Syrophoenicians, but actually Jews. In particular, he was confronting Jewish leaders who had done all of the work, you remember, to make themselves look really good on the outside. They'd done all this stuff. They had performed all these rituals, and they come to Jesus, and they're like, hey, why is it that your disciples don't seem to care so much about all the ordinances that we made up? And he's like, because they don't matter. (laughs) They just don't matter. Like, all of that stuff that you're doing on the outside, it looks really great, but your hearts are far from God. Do you know that? He confronts them with it, and he speaks to them, and he says, what, what matters is not what's on the outside. You're, it's not your external apparent, appearance, but it's actually what's in your heart that matters. These are the very people, these Jewish people, these are the very people that Jesus actually came to minister to, the lost sheep of Israel. These are the very people that their whole lives have had the scriptures. They should have been able to see him for who he was, but they miss it. He gets outside of that region, and what he encounters is a, is a person who says, I have no claim on the inheritance of the Jewish people, but I just need a touch from God. I need a touch from you. Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are. This woman, she risks everything. Like she barges in unannounced to the place that Jesus was staying. She was not invited in any way. She comes in fully knowing that she's about to be thrown out of the house. Like at any moment, somebody could grab her and say, you have no business being here. She's risking uh, making everyone else in the home ceremonially unclean based on their customs. She's risking breaking the law because it was unlawful for a woman to come and approach a rabbi directly. She, She risks everything because she's desperate. And she says to him, I've tried everything else. I've gone everywhere else. I know how to go. And Jesus, you're the only one that can fix this. I really believe that. It's got to be you, Jesus. If it's not you, nothing else will do. Hey, the book of Mark right here is asking the reader, do you see the contrast of the people in the kingdom of heaven? Do you see the contrast of the people that Jesus is dealing with and interacting with from day to day? There are people on one hand that are presenting themselves to God, expecting to receive some accolades for their great work or the way that they look or the way that they've put themselves together, right? But then on the other hand, you have these people who say, I don't have anything but the grace of Jesus and it's all I need. This is the the message that Jesus has come 
to proclaim. Think about the people that he's interacted with again and again in the book of Mark. Go all the way back to chapter two from our first couple of weeks that we studied this book. We see there's a man that's a paralytic, right? And what happens? He gets lowered down like his friends tear the roof off and lower him down because he's desperate for a touch from Jesus. A few weeks ago, we saw a a woman with a bleeding disorder and she's fighting through the crowd, just going, if I can just, just reach out and maybe touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. I'm desperate. I've got to fight my way through. And we see that there's a a man that is is, uh, full of a thousand demons. And uh, what we see is that he's cutting himself with rocks. And uh, Jesus comes to him and uh, cast the demons out. They're desperate. These are desperate people. And these are the people that Jesus interacts with. These are the people that Jesus is moving toward again and again. But look at how Jesus responds to her because it's really not what we would expect. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wait a minute. Spicy Jesus, what is going on? Why would you say that kind of thing to a person? Like, did Jesus really just take a woman in her distress and call her a dog and tell her to get lost? Is that what's going on? Like, is Jesus just grumpy and tired? Is that what we have happening here? Hey, as I've studied this passage this week, I really actually think that Jesus came to this region specifically because of this woman and her daughter. (laughs) Like, I just think that he's constantly moving towards people that are desperate. We see again and again that uh, people come to him and he's planned all along to meet them in the middle of their need. And so I actually think that what we've seen is Jesus always shows his patience. He's never in a hurry. I think he came to meet with this woman, but I think he's going to entice her faith out just a little bit. So Jesus, he starts to speak to this woman in parable. He speaks to her in metaphor in the way that we've seen Jesus work, uh, you know, speak uh, many times before. And the idea here is uh, if you've got a pet in your house, the idea is that there's order in a home. Dogs don't eat at the table. If your dog eats at the table, stop it. Don't do that. Dogs don't eat at the table. And they certainly don't eat the food before the kids get a chance to eat the food, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. This is a true story. Friday night, I was, uh, I was officiating a wedding. We have a couple in the church that um, was getting married, and they were not getting married here in the building. We did it in a, a backyard, a friend of theirs backyard, really beautiful setup. The whole thing is put together. And, uh, and just about the time that the ceremony is about to start, uh, the guests are arriving. They're seating themselves in these, in these seats outdoors, and the last kind of details are being put in place, and the bride is just about ready to walk down the aisle, I go, ins- I, I go inside and I get the communion bread because the, the couple, they're going to receive communion as part of their ceremony, as we do uh, quite a bit in, in weddings. And so I bring the bread out and I set it on a table like this and I grab the empty cup and I go in to pour the wine and about a minute later, I come back out, I set the wine down and I realize the bread is gone. Like I just set the bread down and the bread is gone. We're just about to start the ceremony and I'm kind of like, you know, puzzled. And I look and I see, I see the guests are looking at me, you know, with this face of horror. 
And they're looking at me, and then they look over about 20 yards to the right, and I see like a 100-pound labradoodle just chowing down <laughs> on a full <laughs> loaf of bread. <laughs> and we all had a, a good laugh. Here's the thing. The people still got married. We worked it out. Someone went and got uh, more bread. They still got married. The dog didn't get sent off you know, to a, to a shelter. The dog didn't get canceled or run out of the family. It just wasn't the way it was supposed to go. It was out of order. And I think everybody at that wedding realized, like, dog, that bread was not for you. <laughs> that bread was for the people that are about to get married. And in this moment, Jesus, he's just referring to priority. He's refer- referring to the order of his mission in the world. He's first come to the kingdom of Israel. He's first come to his brothers and sisters that are of Jewish descent. And then the message of the kingdom is going to make its way out to the nations, but not first. Um, There's certainly enough goodness in the kingdom of God to make his way out beyond the nation of Israel, but not yet. The light of Jesus is going to shine to all the nations, but not yet. He's working in order. So this woman, she's kind of getting the message like, Thank you for your inquiry. Your message is important to us. We are currently helping other customers. (laughs) Your message will be answered in the order that it was received. When you and I get that message on the phone, we, we like, at least I feel like, who's more important than me? Like, raise my need, raise my, you know, elevate my issue to the top. I need to speak to somebody immediately. But this is not what she does. She responds very differently in verse 28. Remember now, this is a desperate mom. Have you ever been around a mom who's desperate for her kids? This is how she responds. She looks straight at Jesus and she says, she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. (laughs) She comes back to Jesus and she's like, I'm not taking no for an answer. She even plays off the metaphor and she throws it back at him. She says, I understand what you're saying. Hey, Jesus, I'm not even offended that you're calling me an outsider. I know I don't belong at your table. I have no business even asking you for help, but I'm not taking no for an answer. What's remarkable to me about the whole time that Jesus has been telling stories, the whole time that he's been using parables, again and again, he tells these stories. He's speaking to people of Jewish descent as if they're going to understand. And they keep coming back to him and going, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like that story just made absolutely no sense to us. And he has to explain it. But in this case, here's a woman who's an outsider, a woman who is not of the the lineage of Israel. And he says a sentence to her and she immediately, she's like, yeah, I get it. And I'm not even going to take offense to it. I'm just going to respond in further desperation. Jesus, you're the only one that can make a difference. I'm not even asking to sit at the table. I'm just saying, I'll eat the crumbs. I'll take the leftovers. Whatever grace you have for me, Jesus, is enough. And my hands are open, and I want to receive from you today just the crumbs will do. Hey, here's the, here's the beauty and the turning point of this passage. This woman who's desperate for her daughter She is making a very clear appeal to Jesus, not based on her goodness, not based on what she has to offer to him, not based on the way that she's put herself together or how great and moral she is. 
She's making her appeal purely based on his goodness. She won't let him go because she's convinced that nothing else will do. There's nothing short of a word that he has to speak over her daughter that will actually make a difference. This is the point of the story, okay? Hey, don't get lost in all the conversation about like, what is Jesus saying about dogs and when do dogs get to eat? Don't think about any of that. Uh, The point of the story is this woman's faith. It's true religion and it's the heart of the gospel. She throws herself at the mercy of Jesus, recognizing nothing else, no one else is gonna be able to change this situation. Nothing else will do. Hey, she doesn't come to Jesus looking for a quick fix. She's not coming to Jesus looking for a quick boost to her, to her joy. She's looking for new life. And she says, maybe, just maybe, this Jesus is the one who can give life to me and to my daughter. She's desperate. The irony and the punch to me of this whole thing is that it's the religious and the self-entitled again and again who miss it. And it's the irreligious, the down and out, are the ones that are time and time again being blessed, the ones that are being healed, and the ones who are being restored. Have you noticed that? It's the people who come to Jesus and they go like, yeah, I know I don't deserve anything. I'm just gonna throw myself at your feet. And those are the ones who are actually able to receive with gratitude again and again. Here's the problem. I don't think most of us wanna think of ourselves that way. I don't think that we often think of ourselves as the people who need new life and transformation from Jesus. We don't think of ourselves as as people who day to day, step by step, need the grace of the living God or we're not going to be able to go on. I think we think of ourselves as people who need a moral pick-me-up. We need a bit of a boost. We need God to get on board and bless the things that we're already after and the things that we're wanting. I think that we look to Jesus for religious fuel, for our our political persuasions or our personal preferences that we bring to him, but we don't come to him as desperate people. This is why anyone who truly considers the claims of Jesus and relationship with him are at some point going to get frustrated in the scriptures and now because he doesn't play by our rules. He's not going to be our moral mascot. He's not going to bend to our political commitments. He didn't come to just give us like our best life now. He came to give us new life and hope and future. It's very different than what we sometimes come to him for. But this woman, what we see in the story is that she doesn't come to him this way. She says, Jesus, it's got to be you or I've got nothing. I'm desperate. Only you will do. Only you will do. I have nowhere else to go, Jesus. Only you will do. It's got to be you or I've got nothing, even your leftovers will be enough for me. And Jesus, I love that for just a minute, he kind of holds his true character, you know? I just imagine that he's standing there smiling, like waiting for her faith to come out. And then you can just see how much he loves this woman. He loves her daughter. He loves her faith. This is what he says to her. Verse 29 He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found the young child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is true religion. This woman walks away this day, blessed, her daughter healed, her family touched. 
not because of her own goodness, but because she came to Jesus and pled with, pled with him, pleads with him based on his goodness and who he is. This is true religion, my friends. So true religion, that's the nature of true religion. The, the second thing that I just want us to see, if we keep reading in the story, is that this idea of true religion, it meets us where we are. Keep reading in the story. Verse 31, he returned from the region and went to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Epphethah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged him to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So really quickly, let's just walk through this. He moves from Tyre and Sidon back into the Israelite borders, and he, he lands in the Decapolis, which is another place that is mostly populated by non-Jews. This is, this is Gentiles in this place. This is actually the place where Jesus rode out that crazy storm just to get to the guy to cast all the demons out of him. So this is, this is the place where he's been before. And what happens next? They get here, and uh, there's this man who's deaf. There's a man who cannot speak, and they beg him to heal him. And uh, what happens next is just kind of bizarre. Jesus, he pulls this man aside. Can you imagine like, hey, Jesus, why not just gather the crowd around and go like, hey, let's do a big show. That's not what Jesus does. Can you imagine a man who is deaf and not able to speak his whole life? Like his, everything he's ever known has probably been like he's been made a spectacle of. And in order to dignify their interaction, Jesus goes, hey, would you come over here? I want to talk to you. He pulls him aside. And uh, then um, what we see is that Jesus does the thing I think that probably all of us expected him to do. He licks his fingers and sticks them in the guy's ear. <laughs> is that what you were expecting? No? And then, you know, after that, like he licks, his, he licks his hand and puts it on the guy's tongue. Let me tell you exactly why Jesus does it this way. I'm totally kidding. I have no idea why Jesus does it that way. It's really weird. Like some people have said, you know, maybe what he's doing is there are these healing rituals and, you know, there's all these motions that go with it. And I just, you know, Jesus, we've never seen him do it that way before. I have no idea why he would do that. Some people have said, hey, the way that he's dignifying the interaction with this guy is he's pulling him aside and he's signing to him. He's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, what I'm about to do, I'm going to open up your ears and I'm going to open up, I'm going to loose your tongue. I think that's beautiful, but I don't have any idea what Jesus is actually doing. And really, that's not the point. Jesus sighs, and he just prays, be opened. And the point of the healing, uh, the, the point is not the healing itself or what he did with his hands. Um, the point of the miracles are never the miracles them, themselves. It's always what Jesus is pointing to underneath the miracles. And so here's what I want us to see. Mark's original readers they would have seen something really beautiful and really important about this that we miss by reading it in English. The words that are used to describe this man's condition, the way that he's not able to hear, the way that he has this speech impediment, that he's not able to speak correctly, it's actually 
uh, crying out to us. It's shouting out to us because it's only used one other time in the entire Bible, that exact word, and it's back in Isaiah chapter 35. And it's in a place where we see a prophecy where what they're saying, they're saying is, this is how you're going to know that the Messiah has truly come. I want to read it to you. Isaiah 35, verse 3, starting with verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, do you have an anxious heart today? Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer in the tongue of the mute. There's our word. Sing for joy. Mark, the author of this book, is shouting to us in this story, hey, Jesus really is the one. The kingdom of heaven really has broken into the earth, even down to the letter of the way that it was described all the way back in the prophet Isaiah. Jesus, the God-man, he comes and he identifies with this guy in his burden, a man who can't do anything at all to help himself or fix himself apart from the touch of God This is a man who would be an outsider unless God brought him in. And Mark shouts to us and says, guys, it's got to be him. It's got to be Jesus. No one else will do. If it's not Jesus, no one is getting a touch from the living God. It's got to be him. This is true religion. God initiating with us, identifying with us, never making a spectacle of us, but meeting us where we are in the middle of our needs so that our ears would be open to hear his voice and so that our tongues would be loose to sing his praise and declare that Jesus really is king. So we see the nature of true religion. We see that true religion, he comes and he meets us right where we are. But then third, I want us to see briefly, true religion is coming with a vengeance. This Isaiah 35, I want us to stay here for just the last couple of minutes because it doesn't just help us to understand what Jesus is doing with the deaf and the mute man. This passage in Isaiah is actually helping us to understand everything that Jesus is doing to bring his kingdom in the gospel of Mark. Look at at it with me again. Verse three, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Now you say, but wait. We've said again and again that Jesus doesn't come with vengeance. He's not going to come with political power. He's not come t- coming with a sword. He's not maneuvering some kind of a power play. He's not coming to rule over people. He's serving and he's healing and he's blessing and he's redeeming to bring outsiders in to sit at his table. So what is this kind of vengeance? What is this kind of retribution that he's coming to bring? Jesus did come to make war, but he didn't come to make war with a person. He came to make war with Satan, sin, and death on our behalf for us. That's why it says that the vengeance of God will actually be your salvation. Jesus is coming to bring us salvation. And the only way that Jesus can bring 
people that are on the outside to the table of God and to do all of these healings and all of these other things is if he's also willing and able to pay the debt that we could never pay. True religion, it comes to us with a vengeance to tear down every barrier, every wall, everything that stands between us and God the Father, and he does it even at cost to himself, even if it means laying down his own life. Jesus comes into the world like a mighty one with a sword, and he says, the way that you have broken fellowship with God the Father, the way that you have broken fellowship with one another, it's got to be dealt with. It's got to be paid for. Someone is going to have to die here. And instead of lifting up the sword over our heads, he lays himself down, and he says, and it's got to be me. Only I will do. I'm the only one that can come and pay for this. He lays his life down and he gives it up for us. This is true religion coming with a vengeance. Not us, but him. Not our goodness, but his. Not our efforts to get to his table, but his effort to bring us in as outsiders. Not our ability to fix ourselves, but God's ability to put us back together and make us new. Could we stand up together? Father, we receive your word today. We thank you that it's not just a story, but it's for us. And so today, God, as we're confronted with true religion versus what we saw in the text last week of man-centered religion, God, I pray that you would confront us. I pray that you'd convict us. I pray that this would not just be a great story about some other people, but today would be a moment where you speak to us And you invite us again to step into our desperation where we would come to you again and we would say, Jesus, only you will do. If we don't have you, we don't have anything. We need to be reminded of this again. We thank you that the word says you do all things well and we ask that you would work and you would speak in us today even as we come to your table now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.